Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 22. I'm your host, Jack Henneman. This episode welcomes back our old friend from the Cabeza de Vaca saga, Esteban, and the advanced scouting work he did with a drunken friar for the Coronado expedition into the American Southwest. I'm back from my pedagogical excursion to Ukraine, and I'm recording this episode on May 21st, 2021, in Austin, Texas. Before we get to the history part, I want to thank all of you for listening and spreading the good word. In the past few weeks, we've had another nice boost from David Burge on Twitter. You can find his hilarious tweetage under at Iowa Hawk, if you don't know him. And a slug of new listeners down under on account of a recommendation from Nudie Reads, a delightful Australian podcast that gives you a short and well-curated piece of great writing a couple of times a week. In the spirit of log rolling, please check them both out. And if so moved, please spread the word about the history of the Americans or Nudie Reads on your social propaganda channel of choice. Our last episodes along the timeline were devoted to the Hernando de Soto Entrada, which explored the American Southeast and South from 1539 to 1543. Soto and his successor Moscoso searched a vast area in vain for a third great Indian civilization, the Spanish having already found, conquered, and looted the Aztecs in Mexico and the Incas in Peru. At essentially the same time, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado would leave an even larger expedition from Mexico to the American Southwest. Along the way, his men will discover, air quotes, etc., the Grand Canyon and the Pueblo building tribes of Arizona and New Mexico. And we will learn the origin of the name Texas. Coronado's reconnaissance patrols would range as far as Kansas, looking for rumored lost cities of gold. At one point, getting within a few days' ride of the Soto expedition in Arkansas. Not that either Coronado or Soto knew of their relatively close encounter, which is just as well, since they were in a race to the same elusive objective. Soto, and especially Coronado, had absorbed the reports of the four survivors of the catastrophic Narvaez expedition. Soto had met with Cabeza de Vaca in Spain, and Coronado and his sponsor, Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza of Mexico City, had relied on Andres Dorantes and his now freed erstwhile slave, the remarkable Esteban. In this episode, we will roll back briefly to 1536 and review what we knew of Esteban when he and his three Spanish companions wandered out of the wilderness after having been lost to civilization for eight years. For those of you who have not listened to our series on the Narvaez expedition in Cabeza de Vaca, you might find that those episodes are a useful prelude to the larger Coronado expedition and Esteban's role in catalyzing it. Longtime and attentive listeners will remember Esteban's story. He was described by the Spanish as black, born somewhere in Africa around 1500. There is scholarly controversy about whether Esteban was sub-Saharan or fundamentally Arab. My fairly superficial look at the argument leads me to believe that he was sub-Saharan, but I confess to preferring that answer to the alternative, so who knows. 
For a taste of the debate in a speculative but interesting biography of Esteban, take a look at Robert Goodwin's book, Crossing the Continent, 1527 to 1540. I'll put a link in the episode notes on the website. In either case, by 1522, Esteban had made his way, either as a slave caught up in Africa's internal trafficking or otherwise, to Azamor in northwest Morocco. In 1513, the Portuguese had captured Azamor and began exporting slaves back to Iberia, including to the robust slaving market that existed in Seville, the seat of Spanish exploration. So when Esteban, who came into the ownership of Dorantes, one of the eventual captains of the catastrophic expedition of Panfilo de Narvaez to La Florida. The Narvaez expedition ran into, shall we say, hard times. Its 300 or so expeditionaries eventually dwindled to four, including Dorantes and Esteban, along with the famous Cabeza de Vaca and a third Spaniard, Castillo. From 1528 to 1536, the four of them survived by their wits on the Texas Gulf Coast and then into the interior of Texas and Mexico, eventually transforming themselves from slaves of Indians into faith healers at the top of North America's first known mass religious movement. Esteban, who proved both charismatic and adept at learning Indian languages, would evolve into the public face of the religious movement. According to the only written accounts that come down to us, the four survivors would learn seven Indian languages among them, and establish their reputation for divine works across the vast territory that separated New Spain, today's central and southern Mexico, from North America. In 1536, the four walked out of the wilderness accompanied by hundreds of adoring Indians. Their survival shocked and amazed the flower and chivalry of Mexico City. Repeating a bit from our final episode on the Cabeza de Vaca saga here, Viceroy Mendoza and Marquis Hernan Cortez warmly received the heroes, giving them food and clothes. Professor Andres Resendez captured what happened next in his book, A Land So Strange. Quote, The survivors could not help but become pawns in a power struggle. The Viceroy and the Marquis were rivals, and the survivor's unexpected arrival would plunge them into a headlong competition over the exploration of the vast lands north of Mexico. The value of what the wanderers knew was incalculable. Mendoza opened his house and kept them as honored guests. He also agreed to look after the few dozen Indians from the north that Cabeza de Vaca and his companions had brought. In return, Viceroy Mendoza was able to question the four men in the comfort of his home— and even asked them to draw a map of all the lands they had visited. As the celebrations unfolded, Mexico City succumbed to a newfound fever to explore those marvelous regions of which the castaways spoke. Unwittingly, the castaways had ushered in yet another wave of conquests. Now, if you listen to our episodes on the Cabeza de Vaca saga, you might well wonder what it was about their experience that would get the Spanish leadership excited about an expedition to the north. With all due deference to the indisputable awesomeness of Texas and whatnot, if you read Cabeza de Vaca's narrative in the joint report, 
it is apparent that the Narvice survivors saw very little that would seem worth conquering. No gold, no big cities, and mostly starving hunter-gatherers. Apart from fairly affluent maize-cultivating settlements in northwest Mexico, nada. So what would have led Coronado, and Soto for that matter, to bet everything on their expeditions into today's United States? There are, it seems to me, at least three explanations for the apparent disconnection between the story of the four survivors that comes down to us today and the Spanish reaction to it at the time. First, it is hard to overstate the popularity of lost civilization legends that circulated in Europe, and especially Spain, in the centuries before the world was fully understood. Professor Stan Hoig, author of They Came on Horses, the Conquistador Expeditions of Francisco Vasquez de Coronado and Don Juan de Oñate, details the many such myths that pervaded the Spanish zeitgeist, if it were, of the age. Robert Goodwin describes, for example, one such legend, quote, That belief in a civilization in the north was encouraged by the medieval Spanish legend of the seven Portuguese bishops who had fled from the advancing Moors during the bleakest period in the history of Christian Spain. During that dark age, the bishops took to their boats and sailed out into the Atlantic Ocean until they eventually reached a great island where they settled and founded seven Christian cities. This old legend was given a new lease of life in 1448, when sailors from a Portuguese ship claimed that a ferocious storm had driven them into the shores of that legendary island. They said that they'd been carried on the shoulders of the population to a church where a mass was said. Then when the storm relented, they set sail and went home to Portugal, where they were severely scolded for failing to record the precise position of that miraculous Christian island. North America was quickly identified in the collective imagination of Spanish Mexico as the island where the Portuguese bishops had established their colonies. That speculation was fueled by a story told to Nuno de Guzman by a Teos Indian, who reported that great civilizations lay to the north of Mexico. When he was a child, that Indian said, his merchant father had often traveled through the Pueblo country, trading his beautiful feathers for gold and silver, which were common metals in those parts. Once or twice, he himself had gone too, and he remembered visiting towns so large that they seemed comparable to those in Mexico. There were seven such cities, and each was home to a whole street of goldsmiths. Best way to reach those seven cities, the Indian went on, was by way of a grass-covered desert that lay between the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean, close quote. As it happened, there were no seven cities of gold. You would have heard about them at some point. The Narvice survivors, however, had heard Indian stories of something like a grass-covered desert with vast herds of cows, which, to be fair, is a pretty good description of primordial Oklahoma and Kansas and the bison that ranged across them. That is where Coronado would eventually go. 
Second, the narrative of Cabeza de Vaca and the joint report were written soberly and published years after the fact, certainly after both Soto and Coronado had marched their armies into North America. In several respects, the two accounts reflect careful coverage of the derriere, as it were. For example, Cabeza de Vaca was extremely careful to avoid using the word miracle to describe their feats of faith healing and to avoid suggesting that they were reliving biblical events, even if he thought they were, because the Spanish Inquisition would have looked askance at and perhaps prosecuted any claim of miracle working. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! In point of fact, Cabeza de Vaca did. Well, if Cabeza de Vaca edited himself in that respect, he may also have wanted to protect himself from the possibility that Soto and Coronado would not find that third great Indian civilization, especially since there's some evidence that he did not believe that such existed, at least not in North America. It is perhaps even likely that his published account was substantially more restrained than the version the survivors told on the taverns of Mexico City in the months after their return. Cabeza de Vaca and Durantes were mature and socially secure men, so they probably were reasonably accurate. Castillo, however, was still in his 20s and had spent most of his adult life living with Indians. He may have told some tall or at least embellished tales over a couple of pints. Few young men in that macho age wouldn't have given in to that impulse. And it is not hard to imagine that the slave Esteban, celebrated, flattered, and feted by Spanish nobility after surviving against unbelievable odds, might have done the same. Perhaps he hoped his popularity would lead to his freedom. And in a way... It would. Finally, conquerors were famously prone to believe what they wanted to believe. Devoted listeners will recall that Soto met with Cabeza de Vaca in Spain for three days in 1537, and he interpreted the great survivor's reticence about gold and riches and so forth as concealment. Soto would look on the bright side for years to come, almost to his last moment. Coronado, as we will see soon enough, would do the same. Stories told in taverns can become true in a hurry when mixed with ancient legends and conquistador greed. Mendoza tried to recruit the three Spanish captains to lead a new expedition to the north, but they refused one by one. Cabeza de Vaca returned to Spain, wrote his book, and met with Soto, before heading to South America to try out his more enlightened theories of Indian management. Castillo and Durantes both settle down in New Spain and largely disappear from history. Mendoza then secured Esteban services. Some scholars say that he purchased Esteban from Durantes, but others, including Professor Resendez, say that Durantes freed Esteban in recognition of the bond of real friendship forged from their extraordinary shared adversity. I prefer that version, probably because of the romantic in me. At this point, we should glance at the rising tension between ecclesiastical and commercial influences within the Spanish Empire of the period. 
As Barbara Tuckman framed it, and you've heard this before, the conflict between the reach for the divine and the lure of earthly things was to be the central problem of the Middle Ages. That conflict would follow the Spanish into the New World. The Bishop of Mexico, Juan de Zumarraga, pushed back on Mendoza's plan to send a military expedition akin to Soto's into North America, proposing instead to send a party of exploring friars to convert Indians to Christianity rather than an army to conquer and enslave them. Now, the relatively humanitarian clerical faction was rising in influence in the court of King Charles because of the tireless efforts of Bartolome de las Casas, a former conquistador who had seen the light become a Dominican friar and eventually an eloquent and even strident advocate on behalf of the Indians. The story of the conversion and the heritage of Las Casas is fascinating enough, amazing grace hundreds of years before, but mostly outside the mandate of this podcast. I'll put a link to the Wikipedia entry in the show notes, and you can do your own work. Suffice it to say that Bishop Zumarraga and the friars won this round of the bureaucratic fight. Charles decreed in a letter to Mendoza that he had been informed that there were religious men in Mexico of virtuous and exemplary life and high purpose who wanted to journey to newly discovered lands not yet conquered by the Spaniards and further ordered Mendoza to make it all happen according to the direction of the clergy. Now back to Goodwin to tie it all together. Esteban was central to Zumarraga's plans for a peaceful religious expedition. He wanted Esteban to go as a guide and to take charge of the Mexican Indians who would accompany two or three Franciscan friars. He appointed his friend and Las Casas confidant, the French Franciscan Marcos de Niza, as the spiritual leader of the enterprise. Marcos was politically reliable, had a reputation as a good navigator, seemed intrepid. He was by now an old hand in the New World, and to Zumarraga, he seemed perfect for the mission of peaceful conquest. Unfortunately, Bishop Zumarraga chose poorly. Mendoza was a practical politician. Even though he had lost the first bureaucratic battle, he still wanted Esteban and Marcos to succeed insofar as he needed them to bring back information that would justify his sponsorship of a much larger follow-on expedition to the seven cities of gold, or maybe the desert of grass with all the valuable cows. The jumping-off point of that and any other journey to the American Southwest would be the northernmost Spanish settlement on the western coast of Mexico, the shabby little village of Culiacan. A quick search in Google Maps reveals that Culiacan was and is 650 miles northwest of Mexico City as the crow flies, and no doubt farther by the rugged backcountry trail that was the fastest path in 1538. Mendoza needed Marcos and Esteban to get at least that far safely, so he tapped an ambitious young commander named Francisco Vasquez de Coronado to escort them to Culiacan and help them get organized for the even more rugged journey to the Rio Grande and beyond. Mendoza made it worth Coronado's while by naming him governor of the surrounding and mostly empty province of New Galicia, 
a post that had been vacant since Bishop Zumarraga had arrested the unbelievably brutal Nuno de Guzman the year before. I trust that's all quite clear. Coronado was the second son of a ranking officer in the Spanish military, Juan Vasquez de Coronado, and he had come to New Spain with Mendoza in 1535 at age 25. There he married the beautiful and rich Beatriz de Estrada, the daughter of the former royal treasurer in New Spain, and became Viceroy Mendoza's favorite deputy. The marriage brought a considerable dowry, which meant that Coronado, unlike Soto, had married money rather than making it or looting it on his own. Pedro Castaneda, author of one of the main contemporaneous chronicles of the Coronado expedition, archly noted that the Coronado expeditionaries, quote, were unfortunate in having a captain who left in New Spain estates and a pretty wife, a noble and excellent lady, which were not the least causes for what was to happen. In other words, Coronado would eventually show a lot less tenacity than Soto. One possible explanation being, if you buy Castaneda's view, that he wanted to get back to his wife. Now, this was not the quiet and subtle journey of a few men picking their way through the Mexican frontier. Marcos and Esteban, a second friar, had a retinue of more than 100 friendly Indians. The term actually was Indios Amigos, and they were not slaves. And Coronado had 200 horsemen and another 100 infantry under his command. From late 1538 through early 1539, these more than 400 men made their way almost 700 miles along the roads and trails of central and western Mexico, reaching Culiacan no later than the first week in March. The region around Culiacan was a mess. The Indians were rising up against their oppressors. Remember, this had been the territory of the brutal Nuno de Guzman. And the settlers were preparing to abandon the village and surrounding estates. Coronado and his men went about restoring order and persuading the settlers to stay at the strategically important outpost. In principle, he was to end the already illegal enslavement of Indians, which he would attempt to do after a fashion. Meanwhile, after the pause that refreshes, Marcos and the other friar, and Esteban, and their Indios Amigos, left in search of the seven cities of gold. Mendoza's orders to Marcos were clear. The friar was to proceed up the west coast of Mexico, which is the eastern shore of the Gulf of California, and make note of natural harbors that could serve as bases to resupply a larger expedition by sea. Marcos was to make note of the quality and fertility of the land and useful rocks and minerals, presumably especially gold and silver, and he was to treat the Indians benevolently. After some distance along the coast, the expedition splintered. The first, the second friar, got very sick and ultimately turned back. This was important because he was the last European witness who could confirm or contradict what Marcos was later to report. Then, the Sierra Madre Occidental converged on the coast, which Mendoza had not known. So Marcos and Esteban had to cut northeast across difficult mountain trails, following both Esteban's memory 
than our vice survivors had traveled through this area three years before, and Indian stories of wealthy agricultural settlements with maize and cotton and whatnot. At some point during the mountain crossing, a stebbin, a couple of greyhounds, and a smaller group of the Indios Amigos moved ahead of Marcos. There's a lot of controversy over this consequential moment. Marcos said it was his idea. In this telling, he'd become uncomfortable with Esteban's habit of accepting the gifts of Indians along the way, including the attention of beautiful Indian women who sought Esteban's mystical prowess. Modern historians have sometimes viewed this account of Esteban's romantic adventures, in which he'd also allegedly engaged during his days as a medicine man and as a returning hero in Mexico City, as just so much Spanish racism, another instance of the famous white man's fear of the black man's sexual capacity. Robert Goodwin, the author of that speculative biography of Esteban, adopts that position and argues that Esteban, who in Goodwin's analysis was still a slave, moved ahead and stayed ahead of Marcos because he was hoping to escape slavery into freedom. For my own part, I do not know the answer. I do know that many, but not all, pre-Columbian Indian cultures were much more open in their sexual practices than the Spanish during the age of the Inquisition. Practically everybody was more open in sexual practices than the Spanish during the age of the Inquisition. I further find it hard to believe that Esteban, who was really the equivalent of a rock star in this time and place, and only Christian because he'd been enslaved by another Christian, would have high-mindedly rejected the advances of Indian women who wanted to bask in the glow of his celebrity. Finally, it may have been that trail-hardened Esteban was just a lot faster than Marcos, so it could have made good practical sense to send him ahead to gather information and enlist the support of Indians along the way. Indeed, the competing explanations could easily all be true. We humans almost always have many motives for our big decisions. Regardless, we know Marcos participated in the decision for Esteban to move ahead because he gave Esteban fascinating instructions that Esteban largely followed, at least according to Marcos. Professor Hoyg quoted the friar's account. I arranged with him that if he received word of a settled and rich land, which would be a grand thing, he was not to travel farther, but to return in person or send me Indians with the sign which we agreed upon. If what was reported was of moderate importance, he would send me a white cross the size of one palmo. If it was grand, he would send one two palmos in size. And if it was something grander and better than New Spain, he would send me a large cross. A pomo, you probably already surmised, is the span of a few inches, roughly the width of a man's hand. Marcos had sent some Indians to look for the coast so he could mark his location, so he did not follow Esteban immediately. Not more than a week after Esteban and his crew moved forward, the first Indian couriers from Esteban reached Marcos. Rather than reinventing the wheel, let's turn to Professor Hoig's rendering quote. The Indian couriers carried a cross, not merely palm-sized, but so large it was as tall as a man. 
As if this wasn't enough, the Indians said Esteban had insisted that Marcos hurry forth as quickly as possible. One of the messengers said Esteban had met a native who told him of great things ahead. He told me, Marcos later reported to Mendoza, so many magnificent things about the land they discovered that I stopped believing them until later, when I might see them myself or might obtain further assurance about the thing. He told me that it was 30 days' journey from where Esteban was to the first important community of the land, which is called Cibola. Esteban's messenger described Cibola as seven such cities composed of grand houses made of stone and lime and decorated with turquoise ornaments. That actually sounds like some of the less tasteful McMansions outside of Austin. He told, too, of more cities in other provinces that were even more excellent. Because he had promised to wait for his coastal messengers to return, however, Marcos did not rush on immediately. Another delegation of three Indians from territory to the east arrived as well. They described Cibola much the same as had Esteban's messenger. We shall interrupt Professor Hoig to point out that somebody... Esteban, various Indians, or Marcos, was prevaricating, or even lying, since nothing to the north was even fractionally as grand as New Spain. Historians argue about this as well. For me, it's not hard to imagine that everyone would have had their motives to exaggerate. Marcos, reporting after the fact, wanted Viceroy Mendoza and Bishop Zumarraga to support a big expedition. He might have said anything. We only have his word for, example, that Esteban sent back the big crosses. Or maybe the Indians were spreading disinformation. As we have seen repeatedly in earlier episodes, Indians from Florida to Arkansas who wanted to keep the Spanish moving past their own territory would tell them about gold and other riches a long march away in the direction of some rival tribe. And of course... Esteban certainly knew that his own new social prestige and perhaps even his freedom depended on him delivering the justification for a new invasion. Again, all these competing explanations could be true at the same time. Now back to Hoig relaying Fray Marco's suspicious version. The visitors continued on with Marcos as he set out to join Esteban. On his way, the friar was met by another messenger, This man carried a cross as large as the first and issued assurances that the land Esteban told of was the best and greatest of all. Again, the priest was urged to hurry forth. Marcus did so, but he always found that Esteban had departed ahead of him. Still, several of the natives Marcos met told him the same stories, describing in detail the seven grand cities. Marcos trod on, encountering another settlement with similar results. Esteban had left another large cross there, and the natives repeated the same stories about Cibola. An ensuing village proved to be an irrigated pueblo, whose people wore cotton clothing as well as buffalo hides. Another large cross arrived there, and the messengers who brought it also told of Cibola's grandness. Marcos had now crossed into the present United States, entering an uninhabited region believed to be the upper San Pedro Valley of southern Arizona. 
Despite its lack of population, he and his people found shelter, food, and water during the four days they were there. The situation was even better in the next heavily populated valley, where the people greeted his party with food and further information on Cibola. Here, to learn his distance from the sea as he went, Marcos sent more Indian couriers to the coast. They returned to tell the friar that the Gulf coastline turned sharply to the west. Me again. This was true, per Google Maps. The San Pedro Valley lies a bit east of Tucson, as the crow flies. It is around 180 miles from there to the point at which the coast of the Gulf of California turns sharply to the west. It's easy enough to imagine a fleet of foot Indian messengers making the round trip in perhaps three weeks. Back to Hoig. Marcos continued to receive glowing reports and descriptions of Cibola from local Indians as his party made its way north up the present Arizona-New Mexico border during May 1539. He erected crosses as he went, leaving notices of the Spanish claim. Yet another messenger from Esteban arrived carrying reassurances about the land ahead. For twelve days more, the Franciscan priests followed a trail spotted by the ashes of campfires left by travelers. He and his followers ate deer, jackrabbits, and partridges. Now close to the end of his journey, Marcos was becoming more and more impatient. Each day seems like a year to me, he later wrote in his report, because of my desire to see Cibola. Then one day on the trail... Marcus's joy was shattered. His party encountered an Indian boy fleeing down the trail. The boy who had gone on ahead with a stebbin was dripping with sweat, and his face was etched with fear. He had a gruesome tale to tell. Many of his friends, he said, and perhaps a stebbin as well, had been attacked and killed by the people of Cibola. By further inquiry, Marcos indeed corroborated, at least that Esteban had died on the orders of the chief at Cibola. There are several versions of Esteban's fate, all of them hearsay. One in particular strikes me as credible because it does not pass through Frame Marcos, who we will see was not very trustworthy. In the spring of 1540, most of a year after the reports of Esteban's death had reached Marcos, Mendoza sent a maritime expedition under the command of Hernando de Alarcón up the Gulf of California to the mouth of the Colorado River. Alarcón's mission was to resupply the Coronada and Trata, at that point moving along the same route, and to push up the Colorado River if necessary to do that. Here's Robert Goodwin's summary of Alarcón's narrative. As they travel... Alarcon diligently questioned the Indians for information about Cibola, sometimes resorting to unreliable sign language, but using interpreters whenever they were available. Alarcon reported that when they had penetrated far upstream, one of the local Indians who was acting as an interpreter noticed the expedition Greyhound, an ideal dog for hunting hare and rabbit in the rough bush country. This man remarked that he had seen these strange animals before at Cibola. Then as the interpreter watched the daily comings and goings of the Spaniards with a keen eye, he pointed to some colorful ceramic plates and said that he had also seen that kind of thing 
at Cibola. Both the dog and the plates, he explained, had been brought by a black man who wore a beard. For the moment, Alarcon gleaned no further information about Esteban, but as he continued up the river, he came across an Indian chief who'd been at Cibola himself. Alarcon, hoping for news of Coronado, asked this man if he'd ever heard of other people like the Spaniards. No, he said, but then he went on to comment that there was a black man who wore bells on his arms and legs and had a dog much like your own. The Indian chief said that Esteban had been murdered at Cibola. Why? asked Alarcon. The lord of Cibola, the chief explained, had asked the black man whether he had any brothers. I have an infinite number, Esteban is supposed to have replied. They are very well armed and are close at hand. When the lords of Cibola heard this news, they held a council meeting and determined that it would be best to kill the black man so that he could not report to his brothers. That is why they killed him, the Colorado Indian explained. Then they cut him up into many pieces, and these were distributed among all the lords of Cibola, so that they would know for certain that he was dead. Then in August 1540, Coronado wrote to the viceroy, noting that the expedition had found many of Esteban's possessions and explaining that he had reached the conclusion that the death of the Negro is perfectly certain. Close quote. And so, in all probability, there ended the life of the remarkable, resilient, charismatic, and probably experienced Esteban. This seems like a great place to stop for today, with but one observation about Esteban. If he were indeed as practiced in matters of the heart, as it were, as Spanish chroniclers imagine, it would stand to reason that countless thousands of people today must be descended from him. There's an interesting project for Ancestry.com. Next, we shall see what Fray Marcos reported on his return and then jump into the Coronado expedition, another great journey of futility and brutality that nevertheless shaped vast early America. Thank you again for listening. And if you haven't already, please tell your friends about the History of the Americans podcast. Follow us on the podcast Facebook page. Subscribe by email through the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. And send me questions, eruptions of indignation, and pats on the back by email to thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com.